You're listening to So You Want to Be a Photographer with Gina Militia, one of Australia's leading portrait celebrity and lifestyle photographers. With over 25 years' experience in the industry, Gina is a pro photographer who regularly travels the world shooting for some of the country's top magazines and advertisers. She is author of four best-selling books on photography, runs workshops and mentors aspiring photographers all around the world. In conversation with journalist, interviewer and budding amateur photographer Valerie Koo, Gina reveals what it takes to build a successful photography business, provides a sneak peek into life behind the lens and talks about her tips and techniques to get the perfect shot. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 354 of So You Want to Be a Photographer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Gina Militia. How are you, Gina? I'm great, Val. I'm super excited about this week's episode. We're talking about printing your images at home with guest Ian Vanderwood. So um, this this is a a ripper. I chatted to him for a long time. We did a deep dive. So really excited to share that with you guys today. Wonderful. Okay. And what have you been up to anyway lately? Uh, so I've been in the country on a big shoot and, uh, my, my, my car actually now looks like it, it should be a four wheel drive. It's covered in mud. So mm-hmm. I gotta go get it cleaned off. I had a blast, uh, doing that shoot. I love, uh, photographing my, uh, farmers. It's, uh, it's mm-hmm. lots of fun. And in, uh, the goal community, we just shared a new tutorial on a super quick, uh, editing protocol that I've been using lately, more so for my proofs when I'm sending those out to people. Mm. And uh, it's just a a really super quick and easy way to edit your photos. And I'm also currently working on Zero to Hero Part 3. So this is Part 3 of a lighting course that I've been developing. So the the gold members have been getting uh, bits and pieces of that uh, as I'm as as I'm creating them, they're getting them, and they've all been working on them and having great success. It really takes the uh, the mystery out of learning how to light your images. Fantastic. Okay, so we want to give a big shout out to Lexi who uh, made a comment in the gold community. Lexi said, hi, Gina, I'm a newbie sitting on the sidelines following or trying to everything that's here. And I just want to say I really respect you for the time and effort you put into the group. Yes, that's what people are paying for, but I think you go way beyond expectations and you don't hold back. So many see knowledge as power and won't divulge info, but you put it all out there for us. Thank you. Oh, that's a great that's comment sweet. from thank Leslie. You, Lexi. Yeah. Thank you, Lexi. And it's so true. Gina is so generous uh, with all of her advice and her experience and insights. Um, and if you want to find out a little bit more about the gold community, have a listen to this. This podcast is brought to you by the gold community. One of the things I love is mentoring the incredible photographers who are in my gold community. I recently asked Kerry Setch about how much the gold community has had an impact on her photography. So it's just level upon level upon level. So when I first started, I really didn't understand even portraiture and lighting at yep. all. So to learn those basics, but then to push myself and for you to push me in that to... Um, to uh, go that next level has been really incredible. So 
as well as the support and connections that have developed within the community. So, um, yeah, it's been really good in the access to resources. If you'd like to find out more about the Gold community, head to GinaMilitia.com and click on Memberships. All right, so let's move on to our guest this week. We're going to be talking about printing your images at home with our guest Ian Vanderwald. What what have we got in store, Gina? All right, well, Ian is uh, an absolute legend in the industry. He's been a commercial photographer uh, for even longer than I have, which is a long time, so 30-plus mm. years. Uh, and uh, so... But what I wanted him on the show about is uh, one of his specialties is he's a master printer. So he's mm. uh, like an ambassador for uh, BenQ monitors and Ilford and also uh, he's a master printer. So he knows his stuff. And this is like we get so many questions about printing. One of my images look great on the screen and then when mm. I print them, they're too dark. And, of course... I have zero, zero tolerance for printing images. I don't do it. I palm it off. You enjoy it, Val. Is that right? You, you're, I you're wouldn't say I enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> I do do it, uh, but I wouldn't say I enjoy it. When I have, like, nailed it, I enjoy that part. Yes. But it actually t- takes sometimes heaps of different um, efforts and uh, settings and papers and all of that before I nail it. So I could go through heaps of waste before I finally go, that's the right image on the paper, winner, winner, and I make sure I video myself with all the settings so that I can print it forevermore. But, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say I enjoy it. Well, I think at the end of this interview, you're going to feel a lot more confident about the printing process and like following Ian's protocol leaves you to gives photographers absolutely consistent results. So he could print something today and then print it in three months and it'll be exactly the same because he has a very consistent protocol. And so we did a real deep dive. This is a, a little bit longer than usual, this uh, interview, because there was just lots and lots of questions that I wanted to ask Ian about. And so we, we do a deep dive. We talk about the gear, the settings that you need to be in, what are the best monitors, calibrating your images, and then we really do a deep dive into the whole workflow process to getting these consistent images. We also talk about the different kinds of paper, what is the big deal with archival images, lots and lots and lots of stuff. I think you guys will get a lot out of this interview, so hope you enjoy it. Ian Vanderwald, welcome to the show. How are you going? I'm very well, Jenna. How are you? Good. I'm very excited to chat to you today. Before we start, something I always ask my guest is, where in the world are you? I am currently sitting in my studio in Moorabbin with the door closed and the air con- and the heater off so that it doesn't make too much noise for uh, you. Ah, so you, 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 you're doing it tough because it's freezing. <laughs> it's been really cold the last few days, so it I is, appreciate but- that. But I'm rugged up in a nice feather down jacket and the heating's on down in the studio. So some of that heat might rise to the surface and creep its way into my office. Fantastic. Now, you are a commercial photographer. Just give us a a little snapshot on what uh, life looks like for a commercial photographer in Melbourne. Okay. 
Okay, so I'm, I'm probably uh, what you'd call a generalist commercial photographer. So yep. my work comes from uh, advertising agencies and client direct, probably more client direct than, than agencies these days. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of little agencies that I still do work for. But in the main, I have, um, you know, probably a dozen regular clients that come to me direct that, uh, that provide me enough work to keep the doors open. Fantastic. And it's uh, sort of all, all, it takes you all over the place, doesn't it? So it's a, a great variety. So uh, what, what, what sort of uh, uh, jobs are you doing? What, what does that involve? Okay. So I, I have a, a, a variety of clients ranging from uh, construction and farming equipment um, right through to food and everything in between. I have some corporate clients. So this week I'm shooting a corporate uh, identity for a, a very well-known company just going photographing lifestyle shots within their office environment of Fantastic. people working and so yep. forth. So I'll be shooting that this week. But I do food in the studio. I do um, product in the studio. I do location work. And I suppose what what I really like about this genre of work is that no two days are the same. Yeah. So I, I did shoot weddings for, for many years. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I shot weddings when I – so I graduated from PSC back in 1984. Uh-huh. And, and, I, and I did major in commercial photography back then. You could take the commercial stream or the fine art stream. Right. I chose commercial and always wanted to be a commercial photographer, but being brought up in Dandenong, probably a little shy at the time, wasn't didn't have the the balls, if I can say that. Yeah, yeah, to go you can into say town it. It's not, one of my favourite words. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> I didn't, I, and I didn't have the balls to go and knock on doors. I thought, oh, it's all a bit hard. So, but I did have the balls to convince my parents to go guarantors on a loan for me. So I set up a studio in Dandenong. And so, in what year? Uh, 1986. That you could you, probably afford to, um, you could have bought something in 1986, don't you wish? <laughs> uh, well, I did a few years later. Good but, on you. Uh, yeah. But uh, no, it was not a wise move. I'll be perfectly honest with you. If if I had my time again, well, look, it's worked out in the end, but, but realistically, um, you know, I was sailing close to the wind for so long, my parents' house was on the line. And oh, I was very, very naive. I was straight out of college. I yeah. worked for a school photography firm whilst I was at college. Yeah. Um, and then I decided, that's it, I'm going to open a studio. And a colleague from this school photography firm said, I've found a shop that's for rent. So we went and looked at it. We signed a lease for five years. Yeah. We borrowed 30 grand. Now, 30 grand in 86, I don't know, it's probably that's worth a lot. 50. Yes. And we didn't have a client, not a single client. Yeah. So, so we put a, we paid, well, I didn't pay. I had a sign writer that lived a few doors down and he said, if you take some portraits of my children, um, perhaps I can do your sign writing. I said, <laughs> sure. So he did my sign writing. So yeah. we had a shop and we had a sign and we uh, had. So by shop, it, how, how big was it? How big was the it space? It was 1,500 square feet. Right. Okay. So about, so about 150 square meters. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So um, it, was a, it was a large shop, but, yeah. but being a shop, it was very narrow and deep. Yes, so, and it did have high ceilings, which which was Handy, which was good. Yeah, yeah. But but being very naive, I thought I'll put this sign up. I know better than most because at college they kept propping you up, saying you're better than what's out there. Yeah. Um, which was which I discovered very quickly quickly wasn't true. Um, so I went out there and 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 set this up in partnership. The past partnership lasted, I suppose, twelve months, and the partner was sick of not making any money. Huh. Uh, 
Uh, but I was committed. I'd, I'd done four years at, at, at PSC and I wanted to be a photographer. Right. Uh, that was really, year 11, I decided after doing an art and design course that, that photography was what I wanted to be. At that stage, I wanted to be a graphic designer. Yeah. So, so I was committed to the cause. So I, when, when this partner left, I reevaluated everything. I dropped my rates because my rates were ridiculously high because I was told at college that's what I had to try, had to charge. So I dropped them, not significantly, but enough to to get some interest. And back in the day, funnily enough, there was probably about five or six advertising agencies in Dandenong. So Dandenong being a, yeah. a big indu- industrial right. so you hub. Could, you could go direct there and, and uh, isolate yourself as uh, the go-to rather than them having to travel, right? Absolutely, yeah, mm. and that's that's the way I targeted myself. And uh, one of the agencies has just shut down, and the principal uh, of that agency has retired. But I pretty much did work for him from probably about eighty eight when I first started doing work for him till just recently when he resigned when he retired. Well, that's uh, that's fantastic, and that, that yeah. that's a. Uh, that's a great sign for you as a business person because it, it is about playing that long game and uh, in commercial photography, you can have these uh, long-term relationships with clients and grow with them. Is that right? Absolutely. Mm. And look, I think I think that's probably one of the most important things. And, and you said something that I actually, um, I, I saw you speak one evening for the AIPP and ACMP a few years back. And you right. said something that really rung true with me. And you said that at the end of the day, the art director is going to pick a photographer if they've got to go away on a job, but they're happy to go out for dinner with or have a beer with after the show. Exactly. And 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 I I I couldn't agree with that more. To me, it's always been about relationships, being being easy to deal with, yep. not being a prima donna, yeah. and developing relationships. And yeah. I spoke at a at a uh, convention in Queensland many years ago, and there was another commercial photographer before me who basically said, "This is a business. Don't make friends with your clients. Don't mm-hmm. form relationships." I had to get up after him and basically say, look, I'm sorry, with all due respect to this photographer, I won't mention his name, but I pretty much disagree with everything that you said. I said, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that I don't work that way. I believe in forming relationships. You know, like I have clients, clients have sent me surfboards as Christmas gifts because yeah. I have no, I want to, plasma TV, stuff like that. Yeah. You don't get that if, if, if you don't form a relationship. And if you form a relationship, it's so much harder for them to get rid of you. It is, and it's like it's so important, and that 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 also that playing the long game, and I'm I'm very much into that, and so often you know when the the phone call comes, they'll they'll come in. It, it, there's a twenty minute uh, pre chat about well, how's how's how, how are the kids, how's little day? Oh my God, he's in high school now. All of that because we grow together, but that is so important because they don't want someone on set. No, like I don't want to work with assistants that like I don't care how good someone is is if if we don't get along and they're not a team player I don't want them on my set and that's the hair the stylist the makeup artist everyone I've got long relationships with all of them and they, I, don't, I think there is nothing better than being on a set with a team of people that just know how the, the day works we all work together and we create great art that way so yeah I disagree with that guy as well Ian Yeah, absolutely. It's about the experience. And if the experience for your client is a negative one, then they're not going to come back. And, and, you know, like 
treating them like that, you can't, you know, that it's, it's all a bit about business. Uh, you know, even things like simplifying your contract so that it's in very simple layman's yes. terms rather than rock up with 10 pages thick, you know, um, all of that uh presents you presents a negative to your client and yes. and you've got to make it as easy for them to deal with you as possible yeah and it's like we talk about the the, the world of commercial photography you don't need that many clients as a commercial photographer you don't need hundreds and hundreds of clients i mean if you had them then you'd be doing great but you'd also be having to hire uh, other photographers but you know you can you can do really really well with you know just uh, a handful uh, of good photographer, uh, good clients that you have over the years. So, having said that, uh, what's your take on uh, working with social media? Do you use social media to pr- promote yourself? Do you enjoy it? How do you feel about it? I, I I am really really slack when it comes to social media. I think it's probably because of my age. I I just really don't. Uh, enjoy sitting down having to promote myself on social media coming mm. up with something every week and I've, I've observed I'm friends with a lot of photographers and I, you know I walk with a, a group of photographers once a week and I'm involved um, well what up until you know two years ago before COVID was involved fairly heavily with the AIPP mm. so I see a lot of photographers and I see a lot of photographers that spend so much time putting energy into social media for so little return and I think if you put that much energy into actually a targeted marketing approach that where you're where you're targeting your audience, targeting you know your target market, um, you'd do a hell of a lot better. You know, yeah. you might not have fifty thousand followers, but you'd you'd have more money in the bank, and and that's sort of the, the way I think. I don't think there's anything wrong with social media. Yeah, I think that social media is a good reinforcement to everything else that you do. Yeah. But it's not, it's not this magic bullet that's going to get you work. It might be different in the domestic field if you're targeting, you know, like through Facebook families with children under yes. three or something like that. But in the commercial world, I don't know of any art director or client that goes looking on Instagram. Uh, social media <laughs> yeah. or Instagram for their, for their clients. And, and I teach at Swinburne Uni and I tell my kids this. I say, you know, you're, you're, you're pushing the wrong barrow if you think that that's what's going to get you work in this area. I'm not saying it's, you know, it might get you freebies as an influencer or, yeah. or popularity, but it, it, I don't think it's a sustainable business model. I really don't. And there's, well, we've got two kinds of photographers that are coming up right now. So there is the photographer that is going to make money as an influencer slash educator. So they'll learn the skills and then they'll just, you can get on TikTok or or Instagram uh, reels and share how it's done, get your your views up to, you know, a couple of million and, and, and on YouTube and make some money that way. Or you can um, come up and be a photographer and shoot for clients the way that that, that, that uh, you're doing it now, Ian. And I think that uh, the way that you're doing it is a lot easier and a lot less work uh, than having to create a new reel and document your day all day long because it's it's very hard taking that track. So there's there, there there's a lot going on, and I agree that uh, if you invested the time that you're spending on on social media on working on the craft, then I think you're going to get a lot more uh, bang for your buck. And I think a lot more enjoyment out of it as well. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm I, yeah. 
Yeah, that's the that's the key point for me is is enjoyment. I've got a couple, two little very very quick anecdotes. Yes. I said that I walk with a group of guys. There's one guy that 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 walks in our group who is uh, very very social media savvy. Yep. Will I say? And we can't go for a walk with without him filming us and putting it on Ugh. on on yeah. Facebook or whatever. Uh, and then we had an, and, and and so hold that in in your mind. We had yeah. a workshop. Um, down on Bruny Island many years ago and we invited a social uh, media, like an influencer along and she's very popular and she's very good and she is actually doing very, very well out of yeah. it. Okay. So, but when I look at the effort that she has to put in, so we were all there as photographers, enjoying the, the scenery, doing our photography, coming back, having a wine or a beer, whatever. The entire time we were away, she was on her phone or on her computer um, posting. Yes. All right. So at night, when we're all relaxing, enjoying ourselves, she's trying to find a signal down on Bruny Island so that she can send these posts out. When we're driving from one location to another, she's in the back of the bus uh, posting. So it's not an easy. It's not an easy ride. It's actually it's very, hard very work if you want to be successful at it, and you can be successful at it. Yeah. If that's what you want to do. But I'm sorry, I don't want to spend my life, um, you know, behind a keyboard. Trying to trying to attract business that way. I'd rather be out shooting and experiencing life in the real world. So it's real. I suppose. Look, at the end of the day, um, it's up to you what you want to do, really, yeah. isn't it? That's the thing. I know, but you want that. So you know, you're you're, you're sitting here t- t- um, talking to me, uh, having had, and there's still like you know, you've you've got many many years ahead of you, but like a thirty plus year career, right? And I can hear in your voice, Ian, that you are still excited about the photography world. Am I correct in, in saying that? I can pick up, I can hear the passion in your voice. You are absolutely 100%. And I'll, I'll take it one step further, okay? I'm 58 this year. Yeah. And I am more passionate about my photography at 58 than what I was at 18 going in the PSC. Yeah. And I think that's something that's grown. And that's grown because of because the experience has given me confidence. Photography is a funny thing, and particularly when you start out in the suburbs, I see what everyone else is doing, and I'm on my own, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. Constantly yeah. self-doubting, which is common with creative people anyway. But as you get older, um, you gain that little bit of confidence, but you also um, realise that what you're doing is at a certain level. You're no longer putting yourself down. The other thing that I that that keeps me enthusiastic is my personal work. I, yeah. When I went digital in 2000, so I was a fairly earlier adopter of digital technology. Probably I went point. digital in 2000 as well. Yeah, D1, Nikon? I bought the um, DC, DCS 760. So it was oh, the Kodak, okay. it was a Nikon body and Kodak yeah. had the technology, yeah, put the technology into it. Yeah. So when I did that, I realised that 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 I could just take a shot here and there and take it out of what I was going to out of my client selection, and I started shooting for myself again after some heavily uh, some heavy encouragement by some friends within the industry, particularly a, a woman called Jackie Dean out of New South Wales, who uh, really really pushed me because at that stage I was national president of the AIPP. Yeah. Um, actually, that no, was a couple of years later, but she said, you know, look, this is disgusting. You're not entering the awards. Um, and you're the national president. Right. So I've, I've got to thank her for that because irrespective of the awards, what it did, it, 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 it enticed me to go out shooting again and I actually re, reinvented myself but also reignited that fire in my belly that I'd lost years earlier um, 
you know, I spoke to you be- before we started recording about shooting weddings. That really yeah. uh, sort of almost killed my career. Yeah, and that, that's it. it's burnout, and um, and and that's kind of the thing that I I fear for a lot of um the the photographers that are solely focused on that next big uh you know viral video that they're chasing, and it's that that pressure is constant, and there isn't a break. Uh, the the same thing happens when you've got wedding photographers, and I've interviewed several that talk about burnout, and I experienced it myself in 2010. I really aggressively was chasing uh, the the dollar and working for everyone, and it's not fun to have burnout because everything just shuts down. It's like someone unplugs you, and there's no power, there's no joy, and it's it's hard to come back from that. And like as you say, having that. Um, Falling in love with photography again is all about the personal projects, and I'm I'm really pleased that you you came back from there. So you were you were uh, AIPP president from 2002 to 2004. So that's shortly after you uh, embraced the digital world. Was was there still? I, I can't remember. Was there was still a bit of hesitant hesitancy about digital early oh, on? Wasn't there? There was a lot. There was, a, there was a lot of hesitancy, and uh, as a photographer, uh, you and I know that you need a certain amount of resolution mm. for a certain amount of output. So I, I was shooting a lot of catalogue work at the time, which yeah. I've got to say I actually enjoyed, you know, being locked yeah. away in the studio, the music blaring. Yeah. Um, I bought a camera. So you bought the six megapixel one by the sounds yeah, of things. Yeah, it was six I and a half megapixels, the, yeah. Yeah, I bought the 2.4 megapixel Nikon D1, and that was in – so you must have been making more money than me because that that one that you bought when I bought the Nikon was still over 50 grand. Uh, No, no, it was – the the body was – Seventeen, seventeen and a half thousand for the body. I can remember. I can remember. I dropped uh, thirty grand to go digital. It was a, a big risk, yeah. and everyone around me was saying, "This is not going to work. This is a waste of money." I bought the MacBook Pro, uh, a few lenses, and the, and then I just like you know went for it because I I just thought, no, I disagree. I think this is going to be amazing, and we need to get in early. And the, the 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 Photoshop manual, you know, those big manuals that you had to read. It's like, yeah, and I sure. started at how do you open a file? Right. Well, I, I hear you. I am with you. And I, I uh, when I bought my camera, I knew nothing about the digital side of things. And I got some great advice from uh, a mutual friend of ours, Robert Anderson. He yes. said, oh, if, if you if you need to know about this, you need to you need to get someone in to help you. And I know this guy who knows everything there is to know about digital. It was a guy called Richard Malott. Right. And he, sadly, he's no longer with us. But I, I, uh, he was a genius. And I, I called him. I didn't know him at the time. And I said, Richard, I've been given your name. I've just bought this. I need, uh, I need the heads up. I need, I need to get you out to the studio and help me. And I'd pay him. I'd pay him his day rate. And he'd come out and, and, and spend hours with me. But what he did was he set me off on the right track. So mm. right from day one, I was shooting in RAW. Right from day one, I had to learn how to profile my camera because back then it wasn't like the digital cameras now that you take a photo and the color's reasonably good. Back then it was woeful. Orange. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you, 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 so you had to learn the color management side of things. Now, had I have been a little bit tight-fisted and said, no, no, I've just, I've just blown all this money on this camera, I'm not, I'm not 
going to spend any more money getting someone like Richard in, I'd probably still be struggling. And, you know, I had a stand-up arguments with people that couldn't see the point of shooting raw, that you're much better off shooting JPEG. And I'm thinking, with the colour that's coming out of these things, shooting JPEG, it's suicide. But yeah. that's what I did. I followed it, and he set me on the right path, and it just went from from uh, from good to better, if <laughs> I couldn't think of the right words. Sorry, yeah, and I can't it, it, imagine. Just got better and better as I went on. Yeah, I can't imagine going back to. I do. I do. Like, I take a couple of things. I loved shooting film or transparency, dropping it off at the lab, and then an hour and a half later, that the images are in my hand, and I couriered them off to the client. Job done. It was the end of the day, right? So yeah. uh, that was great. Uh, however, I do not miss this because you thought you had the shot, right, Ian? You're like, there was a point where you go, that was it, number seven, I saw the expression, I th- I've got the shot, but you could never be 100% confident. So I can't tell you how many stressful days I spent, you know, out the front of the lab, pacing back and forth, waiting for those films yeah, to come you. back and then greedily taking them off the – and usually you, you developed a great relationship with the people in your lab who were processing your films and they'd, you know, they'd give you – they were sort of mentors in a way and they, they, that's where I was learning about, you know, push it a third, pull it a third, and I had these guys to help me with that, but it was so stressful. I do not miss that stress in the slightest. Yeah, no, I'm with you. And I'd like a dollar for every perfect Polaroid I had and the trannies weren't quite up to the standard <laughs> of the Polaroid. <laughs> you know, like it's just, you know, the expression's not quite there. The big the big light bulb moment for me was very early on when I went digital. I actually picked up a job in LA and mm. uh, it was it was very, very quick. I, I was, in actual fact, had I have not jumped up and down when I got there, um, I hadn't realised with the time difference, they, had, they actually had me flying into LA, going to this facility in Torrance, yeah. which is about not far from the airport, photographing this facility for me, and then they're going to take me back to the airport and take me home again. I thought I would at least get I'd at least get a night there. Yeah. Uh, so I jumped up and down and said, you're kidding me. I said, I've just flown 15 hours. I got yeah. here at 7 o'clock in the morning. I don't want to hop on a plane again tonight. I need a good night's sleep. Yeah. So they, they booked me into the hotel there, and then I, I spent the day just pottering around LA having a look at, at, at various things. But for me... The most satisfying moment was at the end of the shoot. I sat down with my with my laptop and I went through all the shots with the client and they approved the shots then and there on the spot. So I could fly back absolutely confident without any concerns that I achieved what the client wanted me to do. Now, if I was flying back with trannies, I'd be worried oh. about getting them through. through yes. Through hand check, please. Hand check. It, it, hand check. Please hand yeah. check. No, we don't need to hand check. They're fine going through the machine. No, I'm telling you now, you need to hand check. And it was the same argument. You couldn't even have that argument today at an airport. No. They they put you in handcuffs. Yeah, but you'd be on tender hooks till you'd had the film process. Exactly. You know? Yeah. So, but that for me was a really was a really uh, an eye opener. Like that that all of a sudden I was in control, and and I was shooting a bit of neg those days too for for domestic clients, and the amount of times I'd send film off to the lab to get and get prints done, and they just weren't what I had envisaged. envisaged. Yeah. Uh, whereas with digital, I was in full control. I wasn't, you know, relying on some guy sitting behind a color analyzer to to sort this print out the way he thought it should be. Yes. But you know, I was I was in control myself, and that and that was the big thing for me. And look, I I I, the, I I'm a 
I have a, a relationship with Ilford, and and they'll tell me that film sales are going through the roof. Yeah, I teach at Swinburne. A lot of my students are really keen to play with film, but I'm quite happy never to touch film again. Now, I've I've spent years in a dark room. I uh, the smell does nothing for me. I'm really <laughs> happy with digital. I can do a little bit here, do a little bit there. And with the printing side of things, I think that the printing now, I, I have more control. I sit in a, in a nice, well-lit office, and I'm able to output results that I'm exceptionally happy with um, without getting my fingers wet. It's great. Yeah, I, I agree. I, a- I don't miss the smell of uh, fixer at all. So you've, you've touched on the printing, and I really want to do a deep dive because we've got someone uh, in you that really knows this, uh, you know, back the front so you can answer a lot of questions. So for me personally, um, I honestly would rather drink my own wee than do my own prints because I just have this – uh, love-hate relationship with uh, printing my own work. So first question for you, Ian, is why yeah. is it that whenever I need to print something urgently, the printer always run, has run out of ink? Why is that? Uh, that's because you don't have a good management system in place. I don't. So. I have no management I, system. I, I, I have a policy. And, look, it does happen. I, yeah. I just printed an exhibition on Friday and actually on Wednesday and on Friday. And on Wednesday, I noticed that I didn't have a photo black cartridge. Now, I run a 60-inch Canon printer here um, with, a you know, the 700 mil cartridges. Now, for the life of me, that one escaped me. But your printer will actually give you a warning. And, and it gives you a warning to say that, you know, that you're running low on a certain cartridge. Yeah. I... Always, I used to make it a point of having every cartridge in stock all the time, but I realised that sometimes they were being outdated before I got to use them because they sat there for so long. So what I do is when I get that little exclamation mark on the printer, and both the Canons and the Epsons do it because I've, I've been an Epson pr- printer for many years as well, um, it will tell you, okay, there's only uh, this much ink left in the cartridge. Then I'll order a new one. and. You know, if you order order a cartridge and it's delivered or you pick it up beforehand, you just have it there and when you need it, yeah. you, you, you pop it in. That's really just a case of just organising yourself, I think. So so that little warning light that comes on, it's very similar to the uh, the petrol light that comes on, you know, telling you Absolutely. that you need to uh, refuel your tank in the car, so uh, that you're just watching that. So um, I guess if you're someone, and I know that uh, we have a lot of, uh, you know, family portrait photographers that listen uh, to to this podcast and are wanting to pr- prefer to, to – print their own images because let's face it it can get very expensive and cut into profit levels if you're outsourcing your images right so um, it's a good idea to to be able to print your own Uh, are you in agreement with that absolutely look in actual fact there is no reason why anybody can't print their own work now I do offer a printing service, so I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, obviously I like people to come to me to get prints done because you know there, there's an income there for me. But, yeah. but I suppose it's it's you, you've got to weigh things up. Are you putting enough work through to justify buying your own printer? Um, you know, number one, uh, are you happy with the print service you're getting? Number two, but. At the end of the day, anyone can print. Now, what I found, um, photographers are funny people. I find people will, you know, we talked earlier about Richard Malott. So I spent all this money on camera equipment, uh, digital camera equipment. Then I paid someone 
to come and show me how to use it. Yes. Now, I see this happen with photographers all the time. They will pay for a printer. They'll put a printer in. Now, realistically, if you have it set up correctly, you have it profiled for the media that you're using, and a lot of people don't understand this, but a profile is specific to the paper that you're printing on. So if you're printing on 10 different paper types, okay, you need to have 10 different profiles right. for those we're papers. Gonna, we're going to back up. We're going to do yep. a, a proper deep dive here. Okay, so okay. let's start with, uh, obviously, the first purchase is the actual printer. So... We need Correct. to think about the size that we buy and what sort of money we're looking at investing. So have you got any thoughts on that? So start the printer. Yeah, I, I, I think that if, as a professional photographer, if you're looking at sort of like getting into the into the printing uh, game, if you like it, even if it's just for yourself, I would be looking at an A2 type printer. Right. Now, Epson have a P. Now, I'm not familiar with the Epson models. The one that we have at uni is a P800. It's a great printer. But there's all, I, th I think there's a P900 now, which has replaced it. But it will print up to A2, which will give you a 16 by 20 inch enlargement or a 17 by 22, to be perfect, you know, to, to be exact. Um, so you can print all of your small stuff up to that size right. on something that will sit on a desktop. Um, Canon make a Pro 1000, which I have, and it's an amazing printer, okay? And it will do the same. It'll print up to that size. Now, buying the printer is one thing. You then need to decide on what paper you want to buy to put through that printer. So if you're a wedding photographer, you might find that you might want to offer two or three different stocks um, to provide, uh, you know, different finishes within the albums and so forth. So you don't need to have... 50 different types of paper. You might only even want to print on one paper. But it's important that you have your machine set up properly for each paper type that you're putting in it. Because depending on the paper, it has a, a different profile, and we'll, we'll get into that uh, a little bit deeper in a sec. But exactly. I just want to ask on the paper, because I get asked this question all the time, uh, is there a preference between gloss uh, or semi-matte or matte and and does it depend on the image and how you're going to present it? I, I get asked this question all the time. What's your favourite paper? And, and I always answer it the same way. I don't have a favourite paper. I have a selection of favourite papers, but, but your paper choice now becomes part of the creative process. Yes. And something that's very, very rich in, in heavy, deep, dark tones is not going to print as well on a matte stock as it will on a gloss stock. But you may still prefer that finish on a matte, on a matte um, paper. I did a presentation um, where we were talking about this for the AIPP many years ago, and I printed the same image on about 10 different types of paper just to show the, the audience the difference between the papers and what effect it has on, on the image. And one of the papers was a washi toronoko, which is a traditional handmade Japanese paper, which is almost like a fine rice paper. Oh, it's wow. It's absolutely beautiful, but I didn't like it on this particular image. Now, mm -hmm. I didn't like it on this particular image because it was a black and white image with lots of fine detail, and I felt that it was just muting that a little bit too much. But I pulled it out of the box, and the woman, um, very well-known Melbourne photographer who was putting on the event on behalf of the AIPP at the time saw it and said, oh, my God, that paper is just beautiful. So the qualities that I didn't like about the paper with this particular image she loved. So what does that tell you? That like everything in photography, it's subjective. Right. So so it really is a case of what works best for you, what doesn't. 
I have clients say to me, we, we have to have this printed on mat. And I absolutely think that it's the wrong choice, but they love it. Yeah. Am I right? I'm, I'm not right. They're not wrong or vice versa. It, it is subjective. So is, there, is it possible to buy multi-packs with the different uh, uh, kinds of uh, finishes on them so you can yeah. test them out? Okay. So that uh, that Ilford have a sample pack that has five sheets of each, right? Uh, a range of papers. Not all of it. Ilford have so many papers that it's not funny. And I'm I'm talking Ilford because uh, I am actually sponsored by Ilford. I'm an Il- Ilford certified yep. printer and photographer. So, um, but there are other brands out there as well. But I'll talk Ilford because because they support me. But Ilford have pretty much every type of paper covered. It's it's everything from this washi Toronoco to a cotton rag, fibre-based paper to um, fibre-based coated viridium papers, which are like your traditional old-fashioned black and white papers. I don't know if you used to print on yes. stuff like the Bravira and, yep. and fibre-based papers. Yes, so I we, loved it, loved it. Exactly. And we can get all of those types of papers now in um, – in inkjet, um, what do we call? What am I saying? Inkjet papers, essentially. Right, paper. right. And the difference being, essentially, the paper is exactly the same as what you would have done photographic in the, the darkroom. Yeah. Yeah. The difference is one has a light sensitive emulsion that coats the paper, and that's where Ilford are specialists. They actually are paper coaters, and then they also have what they call a micropore layer. Now, a micropore layer is the layer that holds the ink and draws it in onto the page and then locks it there so that it doesn't smudge and uh, and it and it has the archival qualities that it has. Okay, so- I'm glad you mentioned that word archival because I want to ask you about that. So when we're choosing uh, the kind of paper that you want to print on and, uh, you know, sell to your clients, what is the difference between an archival print and what realistically how long – do you do you guarantee that print for um and what's the difference between archival and then just you know normal everyday kind of printing paper? Okay, so realistically, not a lot. Okay, so <laughs> if you're what? if so, what I mean by that there is there is a difference. Okay, and but it's it's first and foremost it's the printer. So the the two printers that I mentioned earlier, the Epson P. Well, I think it's the 900 now, but they're A2 printer. So they're, they're what we call pigment-based printers. Now, some people call them gicle printers, which is a, a term that I've heard uh, uh, was invented to separate people's perceptions of inkjet printing and then archival. Can you say that word again? Gicle. How do you spell it? G-I-C. Yeah. L. Double E, but one of them's got the little yeah, the little thing on the top. Yeah, yeah. So I believe that was that was a term that was, and and it means I've heard that it means anything from from uh, you know uh, male self pleasure. That's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> um, through to forcing ink through a fine hole or forcing something, squirting something through a fine hole. But essentially it means inkjet. So, but when you say to a client, it's an inkjet print, they think, you know, it's your, it's your $150 bubble jet from, from Officeworks. Uh-huh. They need a term that would actually separate, you know, one type of printing from another. And at the end of the day, there are different technologies of inkjet printing and Canon's and Epson's philosophies are very, very different. Both very, very valid, both very, very good, but there are differences in the way that they do it. 
Um, but at the end of the day, they are all inkjet printers in some way, shape, or form. So what makes it archival is anything I put through my printer here is archival. Okay, even if I'm printing on what would be considered like a resin-coated, you know, your old plastic photographic paper, it is still archival. Which so means I'd... it'll last. What? What's well, the true definition? How many years does that have to last? Uh, look, I don't think there's a definition in terms of a time frame. I think that the difference is that it will last much longer than conventional photographic prints. Right. Now, when I had uh, my first studio and I was shooting weddings, I'd have to replace my display prints every six weeks because I'd have I'd, I'd sun coming into the window, they'd fade. That was conventional RA4 or, or analog chemical process photographic prints. Uh-huh. Colour, not black and white, colour. Right. Uh, so in in the dark room, the archival process was was much more labour intensive because you washed them far more thoroughly and you used things like hypo to drain out any trace of the chemical that was left. You used acid-free papers and all of this sort of stuff to make them last as long as they possibly could. Yeah. Now, with inkjet papers, the paper manufacturers are claiming on certain inks that they will last this long. Now, funnily enough, if, let's say for argument's sake, an Ilford gold fibre gloss, which is a beautiful, beautiful paper... If they are quoting you a time frame, it's generally based on a certain um, ink set. So it could be done on a Canon, it could be done on a on a on an Epson, and it will vary depending on the printer. So the the printers themselves will will give you a time frame, but then the media, so the paper type that you use, will also give you a time frame. At the moment, they're looking, you know, well over a hundred years. Some papers even over two hundred, which nothing that's been prevent. Uh, nothing that's been printed commercially through a commercial process will, will last that long. Wow. So, so, so and, and, and I guess it's all part of the, 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 the branding and how you sell yourself if you want to, you know, imply that these, these prints that you're creating on gitch, how do you say the word? Gitch. See, this is why I can't do um, the printing Gina. because. <laughs> if you can't say it, just say inkjet. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't sound as sexy, though. Um, well, but maybe you can come up with a word that's easier to say. Yeah, I know, but but the, like using the word, using words like archival and uh, you know hand roll rag, you know, uh, it just yeah. makes it all sound more expensive, and then people think oh, I'm getting this high end product. So I think it's all part of the the marketing hype for photographers, and I guess it's important to 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 know all of that but that's really interesting and i think if you've got something that's uh, on the wall for a hundred years you're not around anymore to be you know for anyone to question that so i guess it's it's done its job um all right so you've given us a couple of um printers there and obviously it's important to uh experiment with the the type of paper that you use next uh the room that we're printing in. How important is that? Like, could I just be uh, have uh, all, all windows all around me? Do I need a darkened room? How, what works the best? Okay, so in terms of printing, it doesn't matter. You could do it in a dark room. You could do it out in in broad daylight. It doesn't matter because it's it's not affected by the light. What what is affected by the light is the way you'll perceive that print. So you you really do need to have some form of light set up to accurately assess the prints. Uh, I, I went out and profiled a, a printer for a, a baby photographer a few years back. And she said, Ian, the prints are always coming out too dark. Can you do something? So I said, no worries, we'll write a profile. 
Anyway, we wrote the profile. We did a print. She said, see, they're too dark. And I said, are you kidding me, aren't you? And she said, what? And I said, have a look at this room. I said, the image you're looking at is on a backlit projected screen. The room is dark. So the printer's making the print look brighter than what it actually should be. We're in a dark room. You're looking at, take the print and have a look at it outside. So she went out into the front yard that she was working out of a house, um, into the front yard, and I was in the front room. She goes, oh, my God, yeah, it's perfect. So, you know, if you're going to look at something in a dark room, obviously it's going to be dark, and you need to be aware of that. So I have, um, and I'm not suggesting that your listeners go to this expense, but I have a couple of viewing booths. There's a brand called GTI and another brand called Pantone that make um, booths that have lights in them that you can actually put the print in so that you're standardising so, your so, lighting. So they lit to daylight. You could probably easily make something like that um, with could, some daylight, daylight tubes, yeah? You, 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 you probably could, but it's probably more effort than it's worth. For, yeah, you know, right. Like under, under $150, you can buy a light from most of the, the re- resellers that is designed specifically to be viewing prints under. There's a, a brand called Graphy Light, and that's Graphy Light, um, you know, graphic Yes, you know, G-R-A-P-H-I, yep. graphy light. Um, and I think it's a colour confidence light. And it sits like a desk light on your table and you lift it up and it, it turns itself on and you can put your prints under there and view them. And that's so, going to make a huge difference in terms of like noticing that your colour uh, is correct in your images because you're seeing it under the right light uh, as opposed to you might be working in a, an office where you've got uh, down lights that might be uh, slightly warmer or slightly magenta, that's all going to have an impact on how you see those images, right? Absolutely. And there's a thing called metamerism or metamerism um, where certain ink sets appear differently under different light sources. And this is why I wouldn't encourage people to try and make their own their own uh, viewing booths because if you don't put the right tube in, it can still give you bad results now right. uh the, the gti had a little color patch at some uh, it looked like one color but you held it under certain lights and it was actually had stripes in it now if if the stripes appeared on this little patch that they gave you the lighting wasn't you know it wasn't good enough to be viewing uh prints under because it would give you uh, the wrong colors when when those lines disappeared, the lighting was suitable to be viewing prints under. Now, when I say viewing prints under, I'm talking about viewing prints to make adjustments and to make assessments. We can't control where that image is going to hang. And we I could write a profile for a specific light source. So if you had a, an orange light, you know, to, to really take it to the nth degree, had an orange light shining on your wall and you wanted to hang a print there, but you didn't want it to look orange, I could write a profile so that we could we could print that print so that under that orange light it actually looked like it was under daylight but interesting then, but then you can only ever view that print under an orange light it's yep. going to be stupid so you know common sense tells me if you've got a beautiful print and you put it under an orange light you're going to expect that it's going to have an orange cast to it so i always i always balance to daylight but and that's what these these uh light sources do as well that you would you would view your uh, prints under but can i just can I, can I just touch on one very, very important thing about what you, the question you asked me is the monitor. Where you, where you have your monitor positioned is very much affected by 
by the light source in the room. Having a room that's pitch dark is no good. Right. Having, having a room that's too bright is no good either. Right. Having a room where the lighting will change constantly throughout the day. So if you've got windows down one side with the sun shining through, it's going to be different in the morning than it is to the afternoon. And what I tell my students when I'm, when I'm talking about this is that the way we perceive what's on our screen is directly affected by, the, by what surrounds us. Most importantly, by brightness. So if, if I can put it to you this way, if you, if you get a phone call in the middle of the night and you've got your screen on your iPhone at its brightest setting, it's, that, it's blindingly bright. You've got to squint to look at it. If you, go out, if you go outdoors in the middle of the day with the screen at the same brightness, it actually looks really dim because the light around it is much brighter. The screen, the screen itself hasn't changed. Your perception of what's on the screen has changed. Now, that's exactly what happens with your monitor. So in my studio, which is quite dark, I deliberately have my monitor calibrated to a darker setting than what I do in my office, which is quite bright. That's, that's all semantics. We can, we can calibrate to any of that. The important thing is that you have a, a, a room or an environment where you can actually control it. So if you've got a room where you've got light coming in, if you want to do colour critical work, it's probably best that you close the curtains on, put a light on in the corner, and that's your standard whenever you're doing colour calibrated work or colour critical work, rather because it's something that you can lock down and you can do at any time of the day. Exactly. So it's consistent no matter when you're uh, looking at the screen to do this colour critical work, uh, you're consistent. I mean, I have an issue with, and sorry, we're competing with, uh, the the council have decided to come and uh, (laughs) mow the entire reserve in front of my place. So um, Uh I I, I do apologise. That's okay. For that. But um, basically, uh, yeah, you want to have consistent light when you're working on these colour critical uh, areas. And then, um, yeah, because it's it's difficult as as if, if you're editing images all day long, uh, and you're away from natural light, it does have an impact on your mental health as well. And we're spending so much time. So do you actually, when you're doing your day-to-day editing, do you work in a bright room or are you in a dark room? Well, I, believe it or not, so I, when I um, bought the building that I'm in at the moment, I, I bought it off the plan and I picked my building specifically um, because of its position. So I was the first one off the plan. I could have picked anyone in the complex. So I, I looked at where the sun was, was going. So my windows never get the sun, ever, all right? But I look out onto a sunny outlook. So I still see that, and it's bright. But what, what that means is the light in my office doesn't actually change. So I've just got those, you know, those slimline Venetian blinds, and I've got floor-to-ceiling windows, uh, across one wall and then it's sort of a bit of an L show. It's like a, your typical uh, factory complex. So it's, it's an upstairs office. But the light that's coming in the window doesn't change that much. I have got daylight balanced LED panels in the ceiling that the government changed for me for free, which was very, very good, which replaced all the fluoros. So I've got much better lighting in here. And with 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 my curtains, with my blinds open and my fluoros on, the lighting doesn't change throughout the day. It's, it's fantastic. So I still have a very, very sort of bright and airy space. I can look out the window, but I still need to have a break every so often. You can't sit in front of a computer for hours on end doing colour critical work. So uh, because you're, you're, you're just, just fatigue will affect the colour. I've, I've heard even as much as having a cup of coffee can affect the way you view colour. 
interesting. So, do yeah. you wear um, uh, blue light blocking glasses or anything like that? Because you can get clear ones now and I've actually got a pair and A, they make a difference to how I feel at night, especially if you're doing, you know, these two, three-day editing sessions where you just constantly – uh, in front of the screen, I was having trouble sleeping. So I did have these blue light blockers that I would use at night that were a red tinted glass and they blo- blocked the blue light, but useless for uh, color correction. But then I got these um, blue light clear glasses and they make a huge difference. Have you ever worked with those? No, look, I'm unfortunate to be, you know, not a good trait for a photographer, but I had eye surgery at four years old and I've pretty much won worn glasses ever since i wore right. contacts during my vanity years from 18 till sort of my mid 30s yeah um but i'm, I'm back on glass so i wear them all the time but right. i um i don't have trouble sleeping i i could have a double double espresso and go to bed and sleep the whole night without yeah, right. any problem uh but i do get tired what i have what i find is that i will have trouble focusing if i spend too much time so yeah. i always make sure that i have have um plenty of breaks in between my editing. Editing for me, I always put down as a relaxing afternoon. I it's lovely. Of... It's my favourite thing to do. I do love shooting, yeah. but an, a, a day of editing is just fantastic. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, variety, the spice of life. You know, exactly. Shooting, uh, and, and if I've been out shooting in, in, the, in the environment for a, a few days, I'm happy to have that day editing in the studio. You're so excited it's... to get back. And it's yeah. like, I, I, uh, this, is, this is my, this is how I will know when I don't want to be a photographer anymore. The day I can't wait to get my, you know, upload my images and ha- have a really good look at them. Like I'm usually driving back. Oh, I've got to, I can't wait to have a look at these. And before I do anything, I'm, you know, downloading uh, cards and things like that. If I haven't yeah. shot tethered and it's just uh, super exciting for me still. So that's my, um, that's my benchmark. Um, Absolutely. But ju- just um, back on that. Back to printing. I, I think, I think that it's really important that, that you go into your editing with a, with a refreshed, uh, you know, refreshed with well-rested. Um, so I'll start that again, that you go back into it well-rested because yes. fatigue will have an effect. So, you know, you're better off uh, editing after having a good night's sleep. Working back till three in the morning, it, pardon me, editing is not a good thing because chances are you'll get up in the morning after having a good night's sleep and look at it and think, what the hell was I thinking? Exactly. So do you have do you have a, um, a sort of a cooling off period when if you're doing, say, uh, like I, I, I do a lot of uh, composites for my clients where I'm building images and there's a bit of creativity involved and I'll work on that image all day and then go to bed and have a look at it in the morning and go, oh, my God. What was I thinking? So your eyes, as we're working on images, they actually get used to what they're seeing. So you could have something that's uh, looking very dark and you're pretty happy with it because your eyes adjust and then you'll notice with fresh eyes that you've made a mistake or something like that. Do you have that before you send stuff out? Are you having that cooling off period with your editing? Absolutely, yeah. So what what I do is I'll edit a job. I will never I will never stay back to edit late into the evening anymore. I used to do it years ago. I mm. don't do that anymore. I will edit a job. Um, I have a like a, a monitor at home, a BenQ uh, USB C monitor, so mm-hmm. I can actually plug my MacBook Pro into that and then still work in a color managed workflow um, because I wouldn't do any color critical work on my laptop screen. Um, it's just not, it's just not up to, up to speed, even though it's a very, very good top of the line MacBook pro 
the screen. Yeah, I, I've got that as a. I, I do want to talk about monitors, so we'll just like let's. Uh, I'll, I'll, I've made a note of that, but uh, let's that. We yeah, can, let's we can we'll come back. This, circle this back. monitor enables me. To, I've got a, a, a wireless keyboard, mouse, and Wacom tablet at home as well. Yeah. I don't even have to open my laptop. I plug one USB-C cable in, push it to the side, push the button on the monitor, and it opens up just like a desktop. Then I use the normal keyboard, mouse, and Wacom tablet. Yep. So I will. Um, Always have a look through them at home before I send them out. I send my stuff out using Hightail, which is, I suppose, like Dropbox or yep. WeTransfer. I just happened to use Hightail. It was uh, one of the first ones that I signed up for many, many years ago, and I've, I've never changed. It does what I need to, but before I send it out, I'll have a look. And quite often, I'll go back and just tweak an image here or tweak an image there because even even if it's not fatigue, sometimes you're sort of sitting on the fence about something, and you know it's like writing a a letter to someone when you want to want to tell someone off for something, you should sleep on it and then read it the next day with, <laughs> yes. you know, because, because emotion comes into it and, you know, we're influenced by everything, you know, how we feel on the day mm. and that can come out in your images too. So I always try and look at it with fresh eyes the following day before I send it out with the exception um, of when a client needs it desperately. Obviously yeah, no time choice. doesn't afford that or if I'm shooting food in the studio uh, while the food stylist's working. I'm, I'm generally preparing the file of the previous shot. Yeah, fantastic. And I've got the client next to me and they've approved it, so yep. I, don't, I don't go over them then. Best scenario uh, ever. Yeah, and it's not that they could be done better. It's just that you might choose to do them differently. And yep. look, in all honesty, you might, you might edit till late in the evening, get back in the morning and think, oh, gee, I should, have ch I should change that, change them. And then if you looked at them again the next day, you might think you need to change them exactly. again. Exactly. It's one of those things. There's so many influences, and it can come right down to the colour of the shirt that you're wearing that's reflecting into the screen. That oh, my God. So, so many moving parts. All right. I really want to do a, a bit of a, a deep dive into monitors. So we have the scenario, and I see more and more photographers now are opting to edit off an iPad uh, or a laptop, and then they're printing from those setups uh, or they're working off a, an iMac uh, screen as well. Is if, it, if, if printing is something that you really want to do seriously, is there a, a, a better option for uh, working on files and outputting files for print? All right, I'm, I'm going to go back a cog and just take the word printing out of it. If you if you serious about stop. the color in your yep. images in editing period, um, I wouldn't be doing them on on a Macintosh screen, as in a MacBook Pro or an iMac screen. Yep. I most certainly wouldn't be doing them on an iPad. Um, the, the 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 gamut of these printers. So the gamut is the space or the amount of color that they can actually reproduce uh, is is not quite there. If you look at a monitor, you really need to be looking at a monitor that's going to give you the largest color gamut, that's able to reproduce the largest amount of color that's that's contained within your images. So most photographers, not all, uh, but most work in the color space Adobe RGB. With if you if you look at a three D model of that, it, it is like a sort of an odd three dimensional shape of the color that is contained within that workspace. What you need is a monitor that will as closely as possible map to that workspace. And brands like BenQ, ISO, NEC, even Dell have monitors that will um, display 98 to 99% of the Adobe RGB gamut. Uh, 
Right. What that means is that what you're looking at is the colour that's contained within your file. Now, some monitors are only able to reproduce colour sort of equivalent of sRGB. Now, sRGB is a much smaller space. So what you're doing is you're editing on a device where you can't actually see the colour that you're editing. So you can't actually see all the hues and, and tones that are in that file because you're editing them on a device that's not able to display them. Does that does that? All right. Make so sense so we've got sRGB, which is a a, a, a sm like I like to define the difference in color profile to how many jelly beans are in the jar. So if okay. we wanted to compare uh, uh, RGB if, uh, as a as a as a um, a profile. Uh, sorry. Uh, what was the first one that you, you said? The photo color space. Color yeah, space. the color space is. Yeah. Um, the, which are the two most common ones? So it's sRGB and so SR, SRGB and Adobe RGB. Adobe and RGB. Called, yeah, and there's another, another one, one which is a step Pro upper from there. Profoto RGB. And which, I don't use that. And I, I know lots of photographers that do, and I don't have an issue with anyone using it. The reason I don't use that is because it contains way more color than what these devices that can... No one can actually see them. So in terms of jelly, jelly beans in the jar of the amount of colours we can see, would you say that uh, sRGB would have yes, a quarter... Three-quarter full. Three-quarter full and... Uh, Look, I could be completely wrong. I but, know, it, but it's a good visual sort of to tell yeah. you like the colour range that you can see with the different profiles and um, I'll make sure that I cover – we, we did colour profiles. We did a deep dive on this, uh, and I'll, uh, I'll list the, uh, the episode in the show notes if people want to go back and uh, do a deep dive there. But that is uh, really important to uh, how your image is going to look. So sRGB is what all images are converted to when they go online, right? Correct. It's, it's a colour space that's actually designed for the web. I think yes. it stands for standard RGB, and it's a, it's a color space that's designed for web devices where people are going to be viewing them on, on systems that can't sh show all the color. Yep. Um, so it doesn't actually make your file any smaller. It's no. just about the, the, the color science behind it and how much color it can reproduce. All right, so which just takes me just a, a little side tangent here because I've also had this question asked a lot and it's not necessarily about printing but more about how people's images look on screen. So when you're working in, um, you know, you you beautiful RGB color space, you're seeing everything and then, it, and then you export that image as a JPEG. You might compress it a little bit more so that it goes... Uh, to, to go on to say something like Facebook or uh, mostly Facebook, people say that when they post that image and it's got a plain background, they're getting banding. So you see uh, instead of seeing a nice clean background, like if you've got a grey background or a blue sky or something like that, instead of seeing a nice even blue sky, you're seeing like these little steps through the blue. So how, how do we avoid that happening? Okay, so, so that, that's a different um, sort of tangent again, but that's generally to – so it, it could happen through JPEG artifacting by mm. compressing your JPEG too much, uh, but that can even happen with a file that's not compressed. I've seen this happen in, in TIFF files that, that are not compressed that are saved in 8-bit. So you'd be familiar with the histogram, which is uh, from 0 to 255, 255 being pure white, 0 being black. Right. Um, 
that means there's 256 levels of tone in the red, green, and the blue channels of, a, of an 8-bit digital file. Right. Now, if you've had to work your file heavily, and I'll give you a scenario. Um, I work in RAW, so this doesn't apply to me. But if you're working in JPEG and your file is one stop underexposed, Okay, the data isn't, distribu isn't distributed evenly within that histogram. So what we need to do is we need to take the slider, which is sitting under 255, where white is, and slide it down to where the white appears in our shot, okay, because we're underexposed. So our whites are looking grey. To do that, if it's one stop, we have to bring it down to 128, which is the halfway mark, hypothetically speaking, okay? Right. Then when we let go and we go, okay, what happens is... Photoshop will stretch all of that information that goes from 0 to 128 out to 255. So what we have now in, in our histogram is a histogram that only has 128 levels of tone that have been stretched out, and we get what's called combing. Now, this is really sort of uh, a basic explanation. So what we get is every second tone is missing. Okay, because we've manipulated. Whenever we do anything to an 8-bit file in Photoshop, we're throwing away information. Right. And as we throw away information, we start to lose that beautiful subtle tonality between one tone and the next, which gives us that banding like you see on a background and so forth. If we're shooting in RAW and we first of all get our exposure and everything right in our RAW processor, um, we're not going to have that. If we then output to 16-bit, all the work we do in Photoshop, um, we've got enough data there to, to fill in those gaps. And I, I, I missed one thing, but when we go into higher bit depth, so every time we add one bit to a file, we double the amount of information within that file. So if, it, if 256 um, levels of tone are what we have in an 8-bit, if we go to 9-bit, we have 512. Right. If we go to 10-bit and we go up so forth, so that if we're working in 16-bit, we can stretch things out, but we've always still got a full 256 levels of tone in our final file. I hope that makes sense to you. Yeah, it's a, it's a, like we almost need to go into another hour to just describe bit depth and all of that. Yeah. But basically, in a nutshell, you want to make sure that your process um, is like you're, you're giving, putting in as much information into that file as possible and avoiding any compression. And so, uh, t uh, so when you're uploading to uh, social media, which already compresses the file and throws out like bits of information. Is that right? Correctly. Yeah, exactly. And look, and, and some of those um, programs that do their own compression will cause banding. I, I use a, a plugin for my website to put images in, and some of them just band, and there's nothing I can do about it. And I, I, I try juggling with resolutions and things to see if I can get rid of it, and then I just decide not to put it on my website because it just doesn't work for some reason. Not quite sure why with, with, the, with the way that, the, you know, the, the plugin is compressing the file, but... But yeah, it's it's an issue that that it's very difficult to get around. All right, so let's uh, let's just get back to 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 printing then, Ian. And um, so we've got we've talked about the printers, the monitors are important, the room that you work in is important. Um, so calibrating the monitor is important. So just quickly, what uh, tools do you recommend for calibrating the monitor? 
And so I use an i1 Display Pro, which is they're a little over $400, and they'll calibrate your screen or your uh, or your projector if you're projecting work for clients. Right. Um, some of the more expensive monitors have these uh, devices built into them, but it's always handy to have because if you're running with a, a MacBook Pro or, or something similar, you still want to calibrate that as well. So it's always good to have a what we call a colorimeter handy yep. so that you can calibrate any any monitor that you like. Um, and the process is pretty straightforward. I mean, it sounds like it's, uh, you know, there's black magic involved in all of this, but you just follow the steps and they give you all these prompts and, uh, you know, there's, there, there are lots of different ways to do it, but it, it makes a huge difference. And I, I'm always shocked at how much, like, you know, just everyday, day-to-day life, you know, you're, you're turning monitors on and off and things like that will change the way that we uh, see the image on the screen, basically. Absolutely. And, you know, there's this big myth that colour management is really, really difficult. It's mm. not. It's just getting your head around it. If you can if you can operate the remote control on your telly and set, set it to record things when you need to, you can do colour management. It's that simple. It's just understanding the principles. And, and if you're not sure of what number needs to be put into what box, there's plenty of forums. There's people, look, ring me. I'll, I'll tell you what to, what, what to put in there. It's, it's, it's really, really easy. And a word that, that has come up a couple of times is consistency. And this yes. is what color management is all about. It's about providing us with consistency in our images, but we also need to be consistent with the way we set our, our systems up. And that's what the color management side of things is. Yeah, right. And, and so... It, in a nutshell, it's just keeping that all consistent and it's very important to do. You just can't – if you want to create great prints at one end or your files to look great, then you want to make sure that what you're seeing on the screen is is the, the actual right information because if there's a shift either way, what you think – you might be – you think you're seeing something that's overly green or overly magenta, it, it may be correct, but your monitor is not calibrated properly, so you could get all sorts of funky-looking colours. Absolutely. And, and what – there's a, there's a couple of things that you need to consider. We will never there's this there's this misconception that color management means that you're going to print something and will match your screen perfectly. Right. That's that's never going to happen. Okay. Yep. It, it will it will never happen. I, it's a little bit like looking at a at a, a print and a color transparency. That you, you'll never get them to match. Reason being, so we look at a screen which is backlit with pure white pixels. Okay. Yep. So all our highlights are pure white. The minute we print, we're going from something that's backlit to something that's reflected. And unless your paper is pure white, your highlights are going to carry, are going to carry a tone. They're going to carry a tone of that paper. Now, if we're getting into fine art papers that are unbleached, uh, it might be, they might be creamy. So your highlights are going to be creamy right. yellow rather than white. What is going to change the appearance? But the colors that are coming out should be consistent. So if you print the same image on lots of different papers and put them all side by side on the table they will all be different but there'll be a consistency in the color if that if that makes sense yep so so we can't match what's on the screen and the trick is is that when you're printing a little bit you will start to understand that and you you can get in to do things like soft proofing in photoshop where you can actually put in the profile for that particular paper and it will give you a sort of a, a an idea of how it's going to reproduce in print because the profile 
will have measured the white of the paper and will add, add that colour into the viewing mix when you're viewing it in proofing mode. Yep. Uh, but nothing, there's nothing better than actually printing it yourself. Okay. So and, and assessing that. Now, the, I think a lot of photographers starting out in the printing realm are frustrated because it's like, okay, so I've got this image on the screen, I plug the printer in, I, I print, print, and it looks too dark or it's too light. So, and the, the, they're frustrated because even though they've calibrated their monitor, done everything right, chosen the right paper and all of that, they're still getting this light and dark image. There, there is a little bit of back and forth involved in the printing process. It, it, it shouldn't be just like the first print is correct. Is that right? No, not really. Um, so I'll, I'll go back a, a, a step. So, but if your print's too light or too dark, it means that your monitor's not calibrated correctly. Right. So, so if if my print is too bright, my uh, sorry, if my screen is too bright, my prints will be coming out too dark. Right. Because I'm I'm making my print darker to match my screen, when in actual fact it's my screen that's too bright. I right. Darken my screen down. So if you are if you are printing and you're getting prints that are too dark or too light, it's the luminance or the brightness of your screen that needs to be adjusted. Right. So that is that that is the brightness. Okay, so if you're getting prints that are consistently looking too dark, your monitor is too bright. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So, so I would suggest don't just turn it down. Go back and do a recalibration. So for argument's sake, in my office here, I'm, I, I calibrate to a, a 100 candela per square meter, which is a, a luminance or a brightness level. If my prints were coming out too dark, what I would do is I would recalibrate my monitor to say 90 and then compare what I'm seeing on my screen with the dark print that I've got. Right. If it's still brighter than my print, I would calibrate it to 80 and then look at it. And when, when the screen matches the darkness of the dark print that I have, I now know that I'm in the right sort of luminance range to be, to be viewing. Okay. And that's, that's really dependent. That's the, the one thing. So I can tell people what, what numbers to put in when they're calibrating their monitor. This is the one thing that I can't because everyone's viewing environment is different. Yes. And as we talked about earlier, um, you know, about, about we, we're, how we set up our room, my studio doesn't have any windows, so it's quite dark. So right. I calibrate down there to 80 candela, but in my office I calibrate to 100 candela, but my prints come out looking the same, irrespective. So, so just following this consistent workflow, you're going to then end up. It it, it removes all frustration from printing, and you, you're sort of starting to give me confidence in doing it. But I've now thrown so many printers out the window that yeah. it possibly won't happen. I, I like to just hand it to someone and go here, fix this for me. But there are a lot of people that are interested. So now I noticed on your website that you have specifications for as a good as a starting point for printing your work. So you, you do have that listed, right? Correct, yes. That's yes. For, for monitor calibration, yeah. Uh, okay. And hopefully uh, we had a chat about this off air, but hopefully you're going to be coming up with some, uh, some workshops on printing. So it's just a matter of uh, looking out for those and hopefully you'll let me know when any of those are coming so that we can all um, check those out. Uh, are, there, are there any other resources that you recommend for learning how to uh, print images from home? Any, anything that is uh, sort of basic and easy for first-time users, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. There's a there's a, a book now, it's a couple of years old, called uh, Real World Colour Management Techniques. That's actually very, very good, but it's probably a little bit too in-depth. 
Yeah, so um, I would suggest a good a good starting point would be not to open the box and just and just try and tackle it yourself, is to get some basic understandings of how to print with profiles. Right. Also, printing software. Photoshop can do a great job, but it's very frustrating because you've got to set everything every time you print. There, I use a program called Mirage, which is probably uh, a little bit out of the reach of a lot of your members. Well, not out of the reach, but overkill is probably a better word. Right. Um, in terms of dollar spend, but there's a there's a program called Q Image, and Q Image is a PC program, but they have one called Q Image One, which is a Mac program, and that is a specified printing program, which makes it very very easy for you to 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 be able to consistently change from one paper to the other and it remembers all the settings. So it takes a lot of the guesswork out of it. Right. But that's very good. The printer plugin that comes with the Canon that plugs into Photoshop is very, very good in that regard. But um, at the end of the day, it really is about, you know, if you're going to invest in the printer, it is well worth just getting someone out to help you set it up and get you started on the right track. Because if it's set up properly, um, there's very little that can go wrong in terms of software, okay, to, to get a decent print. And I spoke earlier about how I used to do wedding photography many, many years ago. Back in the days of analog printing, if I had someone ordered a family photo and they ordered 15 copies of it and the lab accidentally only printed 14, I would order another 15 because to get that 15th one back looking the same was near impossible. Because, oh, interesting. So you want yeah. to do them in a batch. That's, that's, that's no, a no, great... That was, that was analog. That was oh, analog. Right. That guesswork's gone with digital. I could print that same file on the same printer 10 years later and it would be identical. Wow. So, so we have that consistency. And that all boils down to you having your machine set up properly and it's not difficult. It is not a difficult uh, process to do. You just need to be steered in the right direction from word go. Once you understand how to do it, um, it's not difficult at all. And you can pick a new paper type and download their CAN profile from the internet and be often printing in, in minutes as long as you understand what you're doing with that profile and how to use it. And that's that's probably the most difficult part. But once you do understand that, it is absolutely very, very easy. Fantastic. Well, I think you've definitely given me more confidence about the whole printing genre, and I'm sure you've helped a, a lot of our listeners uh, overcome their fear and answered a lot of questions, uh, a lot of the confusing questions. I know you have to run, so uh, I, I thank you so much, Ian, for for uh, all of this uh, amazing information, and uh, I wish you uh, continued success, and it's been an absolute pre pleasure chatting with you today. Thanks, Gina. It's been a pleasure talking to you too. And if uh, if there's any anything else you need to uh, follow up on, I'm always here. I think we'll have to do another chat down the track because it's like there's all these other, you know, tangents I, I kept wanting to go on and but it was really cool just geeking out with you. So thanks so much. Thanks, Gina. Appreciate the time. See ya. See ya. Bye. All right, there we go, Ian Vanderwald. I think that that was so useful. I, you know, there's, I, I'm going to have to listen to it again <laughs> because I think yeah. there was so much to unpack there. Absolutely fantastic. And, and you yeah. know, because it can be confusing. People think, oh, papers are created equal. It's not the case at all. Yep. And it's, um, no. and the thing is, you also sometimes don't know which papers you like the look of until you, actually exactly. print. So uh, one of the things that I did that was really useful because the papers are expensive and you have to yes. buy a pack 
I mean, you can buy a sample pack, I suppose. But um, yes. I did a workshop where uh, on printing, on color printing, and um, you because it was a workshop at the at the place that sells the papers. Um, there was like an unlimited supply of paper. So I just printed on every kind of paper and, oh, yeah, of course. you know, so it was great to see it from that. It would have cost me so much money otherwise if yeah, I had to, to test everything out. Papers. Yeah. So it was great. And it's not until, you know, and, and, you know, Ian said this, it's not until you see what you like mm, that you know what you yes. like. And it's like you personally, Val, might like your images printed on this particular matte paper, mm. but your client might just happen to love the look of, you know, gloss yeah. or a certain a certain texture in the image. So yeah. there's so many variables involved. And, of course, if you've got the right protocol, as uh, Ian kept repeating that, you know, mm. and you have that set in place, just like when I'm teaching people how to light images, I have a very strict protocol. And you go back, you do this, 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 then this, mm. you will always get a consistent result. And all the frustration frustration that everyone has about every different component of photography comes down to not having a precise protocol. Once you've got that in place, you're going to get the consistent results. So hopefully that uh, answered a few questions and it, it took a bit of the confusion away about printing. And I do thank Ian for uh, all his time today. Brilliant. All right. So what are you doing in the coming week, Gina? All right, so I've got a big uh, cover shoot tomorrow. So I've like, mm. got the car loaded up or half loaded up, so I'll be finishing with that. I've got some more editing to do and, you know, generally all the work. And then, you know what, food of the week is still uh, mushroom risotto, Val. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What about you? Um, well, I've recently moved into a new studio. Uh, yes. So I will That's be – That's so exciting. Yeah, I'm pretty excited and it's um, with a group of some fantastic creatives who are just lovely as well. And so I'm finding I'm being really, really productive with um, what I'm creating in the studio. And, uh, yeah, I'll be heading there actually this week um, when I can um, as well as spending some time in my home. Yeah, there you go. yeah, it's so fantastic when you've got other people around you. It's just that that creativity yes. and it inspires you. And also, when you're in a studio with other people, if it's is yours open plan, it is. Yeah, you can't really just sit there and watch Netflix, can you? No, because you feel guilty, yes, right? So true. And then if everyone around you is super creative yes. and super Productive. psyched about what they're doing, it makes you feel the same way. So that energy, I think, lifts everyone up as well. So if you've ever got that opportunity to be able to spend time in a shared studio, yeah. I definitely encourage it because it's a, a great way to learn and grow. Yeah, absolutely. I highly recommend it. Even though it's still fairly new to me, I can see mm -hmm. that the benefits of being in that vibe just is a so fantastic. All yeah. right, where do we Excellent. find you online, Gina? So it's ginamilitia.com, G-I-N-A-M-I-L-I-C-I-A. I'm at Gina Militia on all social media. And if you want to take your photography to the next level, I'd love the opportunity to work with you in the gold community. And if you want to check that out, just head to ginamilitia.com and click on memberships.
What about you, Val? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Photographer. For more information, free resources, and Gina's regular newsletter on everything you need to know to become a successful photographer, visit GinaMilitia.com.